Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 tonight. We're going to begin reading in verse 21. And we're going to read down to verse 26. Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, and verses 21 down to verse 26. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that was ever preached, preached, of course, by the Lord Jesus. And we, and we read in verse 21 that, among other things, he said this. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thy fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught or anything against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Last week I told you a little story from my youth, uh, how that I, along with some friends, gathered some gnomes and laid them out in front of somebody's door and played rap at the doors. I'll not go over that again. And this morning I told you, I'll give you a little illustration from my youth about wanting to take revenge. And somebody said to me, you must have been a bit of a tearaway in your youth. Well, I was. And I'm going to tell you another story tonight as we begin. About 15 years of age, went to Bangor for the day with two friends of mine, Noel Fenning and Bill Holland. And uh, we got into Bangor, we were wandering around, you know, and uh, wondering what we could do. And we uh, came down to the shore there, before the marina was built, there was a shore there, many of you remember. And there was a gentleman who was hiring out rowing boats. And so we pulled our pennies together and we realised we had enough money to hire a rowboat. And so we hired a boat. Now, it was the days before health and safety. They didn't give you a life jacket and they didn't give you any limitations to how far you could row. There was no rope around or anything. It was just open sea, three boys and a boat. What could possibly go wrong? And so we got in this boat and we went out a little bit into the water and we thought to ourselves, where will we go? <laughs> and we thought, let's go to Carrick Fergus. It's just across the lock there. I now know that that's seven miles away. But it was seven miles directly as the crow flies from Bangor to Carrick Fergus. And so we pointed our boat in that direction and we began rowing out to sea. Now, how far we got out to sea, I don't know. But we were way, way out, right in the middle of Belfast Lock. We were so far out that the people on the shore were tiny in, in perspective. They were just tiny looking, little dots in the distance that we left behind. And as we got out into the middle of the sea, now bear in mind, I couldn't swim. My friends could swim, but let's face it, 
if we got into trouble and you're in the middle of the lock, even if you can swim, the chances are very slight that you're going to survive. And so we got out into the middle of the lock, not even thinking for one moment that a tanker could come down there, or a ferry, or a cargo ship, or anything like that. Just didn't even cross our minds. And we saw a boy. And we had this idea that we would row up to this boy. And when we got up to the boy, we discovered these shipping boys out in the middle of the lock. They might look like footballs from the coast, but when you get right out beside them, they're huge. They're probably about 10 or 12 feet in diameter. And so we got out there, and my friend Bill said, tell you what, he says, let's row up to this boy, and I will get out, and I will climb on top of it. You know, there's something wrong with teenage boys. You ever figure that? If you're the parent of a teenage boy, you'll understand. There's air gets in. The Lord doesn't seal that up till you're about 21. So, so we're out there in the middle of the sea. I can't swim. No life jacket. You know, probably three miles out or thereabouts. And he decides he's going to get on this boy. So my, myself and Noel, we rode right up to the side of the, the boy. And he stood up on the boat. Of course, the boat's going like this. And then he got on the edge of the boat and the boat dips down to within this of capsizing. Like we're just an inch or two from capsizing and we would have been dead, no question about it. And when he touched the boy, far from the boy remaining stationary as he hoped, the boy began (laughs) began to move like so. And he realized he was in trouble and he quickly got back into the own boat and eventually we rode back to shore. You know, I, I often look back at that moment and think to myself, how close we were to death and had no idea, you know, that was the danger that we were in. You know, if my parents had known the things that we were getting up to, they'd probably have locked me in a cupboard and never let me out again. Uh, you know, you just don't know the danger that you're in. And most people are painfully unaware of the danger they are in. If you notice in Jesus' uh, words in verse 22, there are some people who are in danger of hellfire. That's what Jesus said. Now remember, uh, some people would tell you that Jesus is all gentle and loving and kind and, you know, Jesus would never hurt anybody or never, you know, he wouldn't be like one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers. But here's the Lord Jesus himself speaking. He says to some of his listeners, Thy fool shall be, those who say thy fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Now, what's he saying? Well, in the latter part of Matthew chapter 5, the Lord is expanding upon the law of God. And he's showing us that if we're going to make it into heaven, that we have to keep the law absolutely perfectly, that we have to do better than the Pharisees, who were by far the most fastidious and detailed adherence to the law. And uh, he says, you know, if you're going to make it, according to verse 20, your righteousness will have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Otherwise, in no case, will you enter into the kingdom of heaven. So that leaves all of us in a very precarious position before God, because none of us realistically have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisee. And what you end up doing here is you realize that the only hope for you is the mercy of God. And you need to to have something happen and some change has to come about in order for you to have the slightest chance 
of getting into heaven. Now here's what I want you to understand. In the mind of God, attitude is as important as actions. You see, here he's going to expound upon a number of laws. Laws that were very familiar to his hearers, certainly familiar to the Pharisees. He's going to expand on them and he's going to teach us that obedience to the law is not simply a box-ticking exercise. It is not just an adherence to external observations or, or legalistic obedience, but it is yielding our hearts to his and allowing God to change us from the inside out. That's what salvation is. It's a change from the inside out. Salvation doesn't work the other way. It doesn't work from the outside in. It doesn't happen because I'm doing good things on the outside that it naturally means eventually my heart will change on the inside. No, the Bible says your heart has to change on the inside and then what's on the inside will work its way out. And so what Jesus is doing, he takes these six common teachings of his day, of the day, and he expands on them. And he begins every one of these lessons with these words, you have heard that it was said. And then he says, but I say. And he directs them to those scriptures and principles that surround the heart. You see, God isn't really interested in your religion. He's not really interested in your denomination or my denomination. God is not a Baptist. He's not a Protestant. He's not a Roman Catholic. He's not a Methodist. He's not an Anglican. God is God. That's who God is. God doesn't wear labels in that sense. And so God is concerned about your heart. The Bible says that man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. Uh, look with me in First Chronicles chapter 28, if you would, and verse 9 for a moment. And I'd like to do a, a little chain uh, reference of, of text with you, beginning in First Chronicles chapter uh, 28. And let's look at verse uh, 9. It says, And thou, Solomon my son, uh, know, thou that the, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. Now there's what God wants. He wants a perfect heart and a willing mind. And it says, For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee, but if I forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. You know, that's a really a, a precious and important verse. If you'll seek him, he'll be found of thee, but if you forsake him, if you give no heed to his word, he will cast you off forever. You know, what a solemn thought tonight that God can either take you in or cast you off depending on whether you seek him and indeed yield your heart unto him. In the book of Psalms, chapter 19 and verse 14, the psalmist says this, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. So it's not just the words of my mouth that matter, but it's also what's going on in my heart that matters as I formulate those words. God is always concerned with the heart. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 12 Proverbs 24 and verse 12, it says this, If thou sayest, Behold, we know it not, doth he that pondereth the heart 
Doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth the soul, doth not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? You see, God ponders our hearts. And the thing that God says in judgment of our hearts, that the heart is deceitful above all things. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17 and verse 10, that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, God alone can know it. He can know our deepest, innermost motives. Look in Mark chapter 7 this evening, if you would, the Gospel of Mark chapter 7 and verse 21. Mark's Gospel chapter 7 and verse 21. And the Lord Jesus is speaking again about external actions and words and so on. And he says this in verse 20. That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man, for from within, notice where he roots our problems, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, from the heart, and they defile uh, the man. You see, Revelation 2.23, the Lord Jesus says, I am he that searcheth the reins and hearts. There are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of verses that we could go to tonight that would teach the same thing. We're not here on shaky ground when I tell you that God tonight is searching your heart. He's looking deep inside of you. He's looking at your soul, the innermost person. And he's making a judgment call, not based upon what you do externally, but what's going on internally, based upon your relationship uh, to him. Now, when the Lord says in Matthew 5, you have heard it said that by them of old, he's not correcting the Old Testament. After all, he wrote the Old Testament. He gave the Old Testament. But he's correcting their interpretation and their application of the Old Testament. The teaching here is not New Testament truth as opposed to Old Testament truth, but what you have here is he's simply bearing out truth that is carried in both Testaments, and he begins in the most obvious place when he thinks about the kingdom of heaven and who's going to get into heaven and how you get into heaven. He begins with the prohibition against murder. Now, he says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. You've heard it that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Now, we can understand why the Lord perhaps begins with this uh, this principle, this law in particular. For when people are asked, and, and I've asked people numerous times, and I'm sure many of you have also, you know, if you ask people, well, if you died today, do you think you'd go to heaven? And they would say, well, yes, I do think I'd go to heaven. And you say, well, why would you go to heaven? Why do you think you would go to heaven? And a lot of people respond, and they say, well, I haven't killed anybody. It's funny, nobody ever says, well, I haven't lusted after anyone. No one ever says, well, I haven't lied about anything. No one ever says, I haven't coveted anything. It's always, I haven't killed anyone. 
And yet those other uh, commandments are also part of the law. The commandment about adultery, the commandment about deceit, the commandment about covetousness. That's all part of God's law. But of course, if we pull those things up and we say that's the standard, it makes it much more difficult for us to claim righteousness before God. So we, we say this, God would let me into heaven or should let me into heaven because I've never killed anybody. Let's go back and look at the basic concept in verse 21. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. So Jesus lays up before his, command, his hearers the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment, four words, Thou shalt not kill. Uh, you know, to our minds, and if you were to ask most people in the street, they would probably tell you that should be the first commandment. Because in the minds of men, murder is the worst possible sin. It's the worst thing that you can do. And yet the first four commandments are about man's relationship with God, about how we're not to have any other gods before him, how that we're to uh, not to abuse his name, how we're to keep the Sabbath day and so on. The, the uh, fifth commandment is about honoring parents. And then you come to the sixth commandment, which is thou shalt not kill. Now, if we were writing the commandments, we would have put thou shalt not kill first. It would have been that significant uh, to us. Uh, and you know, that commandment is in, in the scriptures, Exodus chapter 20 of our, in our Bibles. It is one of the Ten Commandments. It was inscribed by the finger of God upon the tablets given to Moses. Uh, and since it's likely that no one among his hearers had ever murdered anybody, everyone was pretty confident at the beginning of this sermon that they were not going to be in the target of it, that they were not going to be, uh, they were not going to be in somehow uh, guilty as the Lord begins his, his uh, perusal of the commandments. So he begins, you have heard that it was said by them of old times. In other words, he says, this is the accepted teaching. The accepted teaching is, thou shalt not kill. This was something the rabbis had taught down through the generations. This was something the people totally relied on. They accepted the rabbinical teachings. And uh, these people had not studied the law of Moses for themselves. They were reliant upon the thoughts and the opinions of other people, of the rabbis, of the scribes. And in truth, to most Jews of Jesus' day, just as to most people in our society today, the Bible is a closed book. They know it's there, but they very rarely crack it open, even though they often hold opinions on it, opinions very often based in ignorance. So there's actually no difference between uh, the Jew of old who would have said, well, there's the command, and here's what my rabbi says about it, than the Christian, or the, sorry, the person in our society who says, well, you know, I see what the Bible says, but my minister says, my pastor says. You see, Jesus here speaks about, about hell. And if Jesus speaks about hell, let me tell you, that means there is a hell. And some people are tempted to say when we get to this matter of heaven and hell, well, my minister says, my minister says there is no hell. My minister says a God of love would never send anybody to hell. I would say if your minister says something different from what Jesus is saying, then it's time for you to find a new minister. Or it's time for you to find a new church. Because that man is leading you to hell. That man is not a Christian. 
That, you say, well, you know, he looks like a Christian. He's got a clerical collar. He's got theological degrees. He's a man who studied the Bible. Let me tell you something. If he's telling you that there is no hell, whatever else he's studied, he certainly hasn't studied the Bible. And his collar means not one wit with God. It doesn't matter what your minister says or what your pastor says or what your priest says or, as Jesus puts it, what your rabbi says, unless he says what the Bible says. So for generations, the rabbis had been leading people down the commandments and they come to the sixth commandment and they said, this commandment says, thou shalt not kill. And they added the words that Jesus quotes there, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. That is, whoever has actually committed the physical act of murder was worthy of God's condemnation And of that there is no doubt. You know, we would agree with that. Murder is a heinous crime and it brings with it great misery uh, upon humanity. Ever since Cain killed his brother Abel, the earth has been soaked uh, with the blood of murder victims and graves filled with many who met a similar fate to Abel. So nobody disputes the righteousness of this standard. Nobody says, well, that's not a good law. Nobody says, well, you know, maybe we should kill. Nobody said, nobody in their right mind says that. So the problem was that although they all agreed that killing was a bad thing and worthy of God's judgment, maybe even worthy of hell as the implication was, they thought that, you know, anything then short of killing was all but permissible. So if you killed somebody, you were in danger of the judgment. But if you committed adultery, and many of the Pharisees were doing that, well, that wasn't so bad. Everybody, you know, everybody has a little flaw somewhere. Everybody makes mistakes. Or if you coveted somebody's donkey or somebody's house, well, you know, who hasn't done that? You know, that's not going to endanger your soul. Uh, it's just if you kill somebody. In other words, you could do anything you like with your enemy. You could treat your enemy as despicable. Uh, you could treat him with utter contempt. As long as you didn't actually kill him, you were going to be Okay, and so you could have a heart filled with hatred and a mouth that spewed out contempt, but as long as you didn't actually physically murder somebody, you were going into the kingdom. It was all about external actions. It was all about religious compliance. It was all about legalistic observance and all of that without regard for internal attitudes of the heart. So what does Jesus do? He says, here are your rabbis, and you've heard them say, thou shalt not kill, and whoever, uh, and whoever does that is in danger of the judgment. He says, let me, let me expound on that. So he goes from the basic concept to a broadened concept. Look in verse 22. He says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thy fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. So Jesus says, you know, that's what they say, the rabbis say, but this is what I say. Now, right there, that's interesting because no rabbi of Jesus' time taught this way. You see, if you'd ask them, well, what does this first mean? If you'd have gone to Exodus chapter 20 and showed them the commandments and come to the commandment against murder and said, what does that first mean? Thou shalt not kill. Well, he would have went like this. Well, rabbi so-and-so says this. 
And Rabbi such and such says that. And Rabbi, what you may call him, he has this opinion. And so what they did was they drew on the opinions of rabbis without giving you their own particular opinion. Jesus didn't fall back on the opinions of rabbis. He didn't rely on what clergymen said, but he spoke with authority. He says, that's what they say, but I say unto you. Notice down the text in chapter 7, verse 29, he says, For he taught them as this sermon is closing, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He then gets to the heart of the matter and he speaks of a brooding anger. He's not just speaking of someone who momentarily loses their head. You know, we've all done that. We've all had that rush of blood to the head and, you know, said something we shouldn't or, you know, kicked out or whatever, and that's not right either. But he's not speaking about that kind of anger. He's talking about a settled anger. He's speaking about someone who has mulled over the matter and is allowing malice to arise in their hearts. He's really speaking about someone just like Cain. When you read the story of Cain and Abel and how that Cain murdered murdered his brother Abel in the earliest part of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 4, it's very interesting what it says about Cain. It says, and Cain talked with Abel his brother and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. It doesn't say it came to pass when they were in a field. It says it came to pass when they were in the field. In other words, Cain had a particular location in which he wanted to bring Abel for the purpose of doing him in. He had thought about his anger with Abel. He had thought about the fact that Abel was accepted by God and he wasn't. He had dwelt on that grudge and fed it and fed its resentment and he had premeditatedly chosen a place to murder his brother. Now Jesus says, if you are angry with someone deep inside, if you are thinking over your hatred and your animosity toward any person or indeed any group of people, he says that you're likely to be called into judgment. And uh, he cites three kinds of judgment in verses uh, 21 through 22. He talks about judgment. That's like a local council of elders who might wish to uh, correct you, a bit like maybe a magistrate's court. And then he talks about the council. That's a little bit of a, of a level up. That would be the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of seven, 70 religious leaders who governed the religious life and spiritual life of ancient Israel. And they have the power of life and death given to them. And then he speaks about hellfire, and that's, that's like the Supreme Court. So you think of judgment as a magistrate's court and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the council as being like the crown court. Then the hellfire part is the Supreme Court. That's where you come before the highest judge. And of course, God is the highest judge. So what Jesus is saying here, and, and you might say, this is, I can't get my head around this, but what he's saying this is this. If you're just angry with someone, if you're letting uh, something brew, and if you're thinking ill of your enemy, you are in danger of hellfire. Now that's a radical teaching. That's a radical teaching. Because all of us have been there. But what he's doing is he's taking us to the very heart of the problem. 
He says it's not about taking a knife and stabbing it into someone's chest. It's not about buying a gun and shooting someone. It's not about, you know, running somebody over with a car. He says it's about even being angry with someone and hating somebody with all your heart. He says if that's you, you're in danger of hellfire. He says if you say to your brother, Raka, you shall be in danger of the council. You stand in danger of judgment. Now, raka, you say, what does that mean? That's a term of reproach. Uh, it was used among the Jews in the time of Christ. Sometimes you'll see in a margin of your Bible that it may be translated as numbskull or empty-headed one. But in truth, those definitions don't do that word any justice. You see, it's almost an untranslatable word. And indeed, the authorized version doesn't even try to translate it because it describes a tone of voice more than anything else. It's not so much something you can define, but a spirit that is projected. It's an expression of the utmost contempt for somebody. When uh, I used to pick myself for school, I picked him up one day. It was a snowy day, much like last week. And, uh, you know, he's come out of school and uh, he was heading toward my car and he just had his blazer on. It must have snowed in the morning. He didn't have an overcoat on. He just had his school blazer on. He's walking toward the car and another boy threw a snowball at him. And the snowball hit him on the back of the neck and the ice went down the back of his shirt. Now, our Paul was never a guy who much enjoyed discomfort. He still isn't, okay? He likes his comforts. And he was incensed that this kid would throw a snowball at him. And uh, he turned around and he shouted something at the boy and then he got into the car and he was livid. And he says, that, that fella's only off there throwing a snowball, hit me in the back of the neck and all the ice has gone down my back and he was raging. And I says, I saw you shouted something at him. I says, what did you shout? He said, I shouted. <laughs> I keep going about this to this day. He says, I shouted, you, you imbecile. <laughs> and I laughed and I said, you imbecile. I said, that's what you shouted? You shouted, you imbecile. And he went, you know what, daddy? It's rubbish being a Christian. You're not even allowed to swear. <laughs> he wanted to say something far worse. But he restrained himself. And the worst word he could find, the most contemptible term he could come up with was imbecile. And that became a running joke between me and him. When he would do something, I'd say, you imbecile. (laughs) But really what he was saying, or what he would have said if he had been living in Jesus' time, when that boy hit him on the back of the neck with a snowball, he would have turned around and said, Raka! And there would have been hatred in his voice. And anger and utter contempt. Now the Lord says, if you do that, You're in danger of judgment. And then he goes one step further. He says, whosoever shall say thy fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Now again, this might seem rather mild, calling somebody a fool. You know, I've called people a fool and you've called people a fool. I've been called a fool. It's not something that we think is particularly bad. But remember, when the Bible uses the word fool, it's using it in an entirely different way. A fool in the Bible is not just someone who's being a bit of an idiot or being a bit of a clown or playing around. A fool in the Bible is the worst kind of sinner. You know, the Bible says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. It's the most wicked 
person who denies God. The psalmist says in Psalm 49, the fool and the brutish person perish. The book of Ecclesiastes 2.14 says, The fool walketh in darkness. When the Bible uses the word fool, it's not speaking about someone who's just involved in a little horseplay. It's talking about someone who is denying the truth of God. Now this person, what have they done to deny the truth of God? Well, they've simply said something. Thy fool. And those words, when spoken with anger are revealing the truth of their heart, that their heart is far from God. So, uh, you know, within the context of that culture, this term, thy fool, was also a a statement of absolute, utter contempt for the person to whom it was directed. To call someone a fool was to say, you are scum, you're the lowest of the low. Jesus says, when you treat people that way, When your attitude toward them is that way, it reveals the condition of your heart. It says something about who you are and what you are before God. And although you have not physically reached out and struck someone down, you know, deep down inside, you have killed them in the mind of God just as surely as if you had taken a gun and pulled the trigger. Look with me in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15. Now the Apostle John, when he met the Lord Jesus, was uh, known as a son of thunder. He had a very uh, fierce temper. But by the time the Lord Jesus has finished with him, by the time that John surrenders his life to Christ, John becomes toward the latter end of his life known as the Apostle of Love. So he goes from being this very volatile character who would quickly engage in outburst to being this gracious and kind figure, the apostle of love. And in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15, John reiterates what the Lord Jesus is saying here. He says this, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Now you see what he's saying. If you hate somebody, even for a split second, you're a murderer in the estimation of God. Sure, you haven't killed them. Certainly, you haven't pulled a gun on them. No doubt you haven't plunged a a knife into their chest or strangled them and throttled them with a rope. No, that's not what's... But in the estimation of God, if your heart is filled with hatred, you've broken the sixth commandment. You're as guilty of killing somebody as if you had taken a gun. And shot them. When I was a draftsman, I worked in a drawing office that was uh, full largely of people. Well, it was entirely made up of people from the unionist community. Um, And this was back in 1984, and I was working for this company. And, uh, you know, one day we were just at our work, and a man came running through the door. He burst through the door, and he said this with a very excited voice. He said, have you heard the news? And everybody went, what? And he said, Jerry Adams has been shot. And here's what happened. Everybody went, really? Is he dead? Is he dead? And he says, no, no, I think think he, he survived. And they all went, oh. They wanted him dead. 
Now, none of those men would have, as far as I know, would have been supportive of paramilitarism. None of them, as far as I know, would have taken a gun and shot the leader of Sinn Féin themselves. But when they thought he was shot and that he was being killed, they were rejoicing in that possibility. You see, that's hatred in the heart. And that is revealing who we really are. And Jesus says, look, if you, if you feel that way, you're in danger of hellfire. Now, that was radical teaching. But it shows us you know, just what Jesus meant in verse 20 of chapter 5 when he says that, uh, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. You see, this is very, uh, you know, this is a very hard teaching. You see, and he's saying, you know, if we're to be accepted into his kingdom, then not only are we to resist hatred, but we're actually to be, uh, we're to be kind we're to love our enemies we're to do good to them that hate us we're not to rejoice if they've been shot dead or potentially shot dead or fatally injured in some way rather we're to be concerned now you say well I can't do that exactly that's the point he's making it's not within you to obey God's law try as you might Because whether it's Jerry Adams or some other hate figure or someone in your personal life, you're always going to struggle not to feel ill toward your enemy as you perceive him. Now here's the thing. In my life, and I'll be honest with you, I've not always let matters rest personally. I've been guilty of allowing brooding resentments to take hold. I know what it's like to bear a grudge against somebody, to wish ill of someone. I shared with you this morning how I wanted to take revenge on someone who had hurt me, and I was deadly serious about it. I wanted that person to be hurt as bad as I was hurt and worse than I was hurt. I've been guilty of hatred. I haven't always been quick to reconcile with others, and I dare say that's true of you. And such being the case, if that's true of us, where does it leave us before God? Well, here's what Jesus says. Here's his estimation and summation of that. He says, if you feel that way, you're in danger of hellfire. You see, it's not just the one that pulls the trigger God will judge. But the guy whose heart is hateful, the woman whose attitude is resentful, the one whose mind is filled with bitter and angry thoughts, the one whose mouth is full of contempt for his enemies. Is that you? You know what? There's no, there's no hope for a person like that. That's what Jesus is saying. Left to themselves, there's no hope for a person like that. They need a change of heart. And the only one who can change a heart that is filled with hatred is the Lord Jesus Christ. When I pastored in Dublin, you know, I was, I was in a number of people that wanted to have a fight with me about politics in Dublin. You can imagine. Middle of the Troubles, 1980s, uh, early 1990s, you know, I'd knock on doors and people would want to have political discussions with me. Uh, and have other people who would want to enter into arguments uh, with me about 
uh, about, you know, nationalism against unionism, loyalism against republicanism. That was of no interest to me. I was there to share the Lord Jesus. And I would tell them, I'm not here to discuss politics with you. I'm here to talk to you about Jesus. That's what matters. You know, my doctor, uh, he used to give me my diagnosis in Irish, deliberately, because <laughs> he knew I couldn't speak a word of Irish. And I would, say to, I would jokingly say to him, oh, give over and I give it to me in a proper language. And we'd have a little bit of banter about it. But I'll tell you something that's strange that happened. And now, bear in mind that, you know, like everyone else, and like many of you, I grew up a child of the Troubles. I grew up in Loyalist North Belfast. You know, I, I witnessed, as many of you did, terrible acts of violence, you know, happening all around us. And yet, when I got to Dublin, there came a day when I met a man who had no hands. He had just two metal hooks with, like, clips that, that the hooks clipped together for hands. His hands were blown off by a bomb. They were blown off by his own bomb. He was a former IRA man, and he had tried to blow up a 12th of July parade somewhere, and in the process of making this bomb, it went off, and he became the victim rather than the perpetrator. And when he went to prison for his troubles, he found the Lord as his saviour. And he came out of prison and he went down south and he was a preacher. He ended up preaching in Wales, if I remember correctly. But he was an evangelist and he was going around the country preaching. And I would bump into him at certain meetings. And if he saw me, knowing I was from North Belfast, knowing that I was from Loyalist North Belfast, he would make a beeline for me. And he would always give me a big hug. And he'd say, my little Protestant brother from the north. You see what happened? He had a change of heart. I had a change of heart. Christ brought down the barrier of hatred that existed between us. Now that would never have happened if he had been left to his own end and I had been left to my own hand. We would never have reconciled to each other in that way. Who's in danger of hellfire? Well, according to Jesus, you are. If you're unsaved and you harbor hatred of anybody in your heart. You, with all your inner turmoil, you're in danger of hellfire. You, with your resentments from the past, you who are finding it difficult to forgive somebody, you're in danger of hellfire tonight. You who can't let go of an argument, you who wish ill upon another, the Lord Jesus says you're in danger of hellfire. The very Son of God stood upon the earth and out of concern for your soul, he says, listen to me. If you hate other people, if you treat them with contempt, if you can't show kindness toward them, if you can't surrender to the sick, commandment, not just in letter, but in spirit, you're in danger of hellfire. You'll die in your sin, and you'll split hell wide open. You, with all your bitterness, and your hatefulness, you, with all your bigotry, 
Maybe even your sectarianism. Hell is not the reserve of just those who murder. Hell is the reserve of every man and woman who even for a fleeting moment hated somebody else in their heart. Who is that man? Well, you're looking at one of them. Because I confess there's times I've hated people. And I'm no psychic or clairvoyant, but I would guess you've hated a few too. You're in danger of hell fire. And the only thing that will change that is a change of heart. You see, thankfully, 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus left behind the portals of heaven and came to earth to show us how to love people. To show us in person that God is love. And that he loves us despite our sinfulness. Despite our own inner wickedness. Despite our own contempt for others. Despite our own biases and bigotries. Despite our hatred and, and, and all, the, all the resentments that have built. He says, I, I've come to show you that God loves you. But understand... The sixth commandment reads, Thou shalt not kill. But you're not going to keep it. Because when God applies the law, he applies it not just to your actions on the outside, but to your heart on the inside. And you're in danger of hellfire. Friend, tonight God loves you. Jesus loves you. And though you're his enemy, he has not one bit of resentment toward you. His desire is to save you by the blood of the cross. This evening, whoever you are and wherever you are, whatever you've done, or for that matter, whatever you've thought in the depths of your heart, I invite you to come to him and find forgiveness tonight. To become a new creature in Christ Jesus and to have a completely changed heart. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening.